Welcome back to the Going Coastal Podcast, podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, John Miller. And I'm also one of your co-hosts, Marissa Torres. In this episode of Going Coastal, we're going to focus on professional development. Specifically, we're going to highlight the experiences and perspectives of two well-rounded individuals who have achieved different types of professional certifications that they've employed in their coastal engineering related careers. So with that, let's welcome Dr. Chris Bender from Taylor Engineering and Miss Mariana Fleming from Marine Solutions, Inc. Thank you both for being here with us. Thanks for inviting me to join the podcast. I'm excited to be here. I'm also excited to be here. Nice to be speaking with you both, John and Marissa. So, you know, the first thing we want to do is we want to get to know you a little bit better. I know you both very well. So uh, why don't we, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Just give us a little sense of your personal background, your experience, your educational journey, how you got to kind of where you are. Um, and we'll start with Chris first. All right. So I'm, I'm Chris Bender. I'm a senior coastal engineer here in Taylor Engineering in Jacksonville, Florida. And I've been uh, at Taylor for 19 years. Prior to my work at Taylor Engineering, I uh, studied coastal and oceanographic engineering at the University of Florida, where I obtained my master's degree, uh, culminating with my PhD in 2003. And before uh, attending graduate school at UF, I studied ocean engineering at the University of Rhode Island up in Kingston, Rhode Island. I have had my PE, uh, I don't know, going on about 16 years now. And I am also a certified as a diplomate in coastal engineering through uh, a company, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Yeah, we always try to sneak in somebody with a URI background from Marissa. Let's go Rams. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Mariana, why don't you give us a sense of uh, your background? Sure. So I graduated from Stevens Institute of Technology in 2019. Uh, that's where I actually met John. I worked as a research assistant with him and various grad students that came through the program over my five years at Stevens. I also got to participate in the co-op program there. So uh, I had a bunch of different experience before I graduated. As John said, I'm currently working for Marine Solutions as a project engineer diver. So since the theme of this episode is professional certifications to give an idea of some of the things I'm certified in, my biggest one that I probably use the most is my ADCI card. That's my commercial diving certification. Uh, I'm also certified as an Envision sustainability professional and a waterfront edge associate. So those other two are for design and sustainability in infrastructure. And then the second one, wedge, is uh, specified for waterfront. Very cool. Very, very interesting. I think I don't know if Chris didn't mention it, I don't think, but uh, we were also grad school colleagues at UF. So that's how that's how we met. And, you know, one of the, the things that stands out, the, the, the I guess, things that we shared when we uh, entered grad school, uh, I remember a field trip that we took in our coastal processes class the first semester. And we were with Bob Dean, obviously one of the, the greats of coastal engineering. And he's leading us on this field trip and we're out on the beach and it's got to be like, I don't know, November or December, but it's, it's, it's late in the season. And, uh, uh, we were, they were talking about, you know, going out to like measure the waves or something and, um, how cold the water was. And, you know, Chris and I kind of like laughed at that because being from the Northeast, we were like, wow, it never gets any warmer than it is now. But, uh, certainly down in Florida, it was a bit, a bit cold. You remember that experience, Chris? I do remember that field trip, and, and yes, no, November Florida water is as warm as peak water temperature warmth up in Rhode Island. That's for sure. So I've I've, I've been down here in the in the Atlantic in December and January, and it's uh, doesn't feel that cold compared to Northeast water. Still warmer than that Pacific water. That is true. I've been in that as well, but only up to about my my calves, and uh, that was about as far as I went. Same. <laughs> Yeah, the water in November up in the Northeast in New York Harbor is definitely a little bit colder than Florida. Yeah, as we as we sit here and talk to a diver who is uh, who is quite comfortable, I guess at this point going into extremely cold water. Obviously, dry suits and and whatnot, but nonetheless, uh, obviously, uh, water up here in the Northeast is a little little chilly. Yeah, so we actually won't 
typically dive in dry suits just because we'll be diving and usually some kind of current or if not current, then boat wake going by or what have you. So the dry suits with the buoyancy and everything and bouncing up and down just becomes a little impractical. You basically turn into like a sailboat. So we do dive wetsuits all year round, but we have a hot water machine. So we're able to heat up water and then we stick an extra hose down our suit and it runs hot water through the wetsuit. So bougie. It's it's very nice, yeah. It's much more comfortable than just being cold or not in a dry suit. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, what's your thickest wetsuit that you typically use? Uh, my thickest wetsuit that I typically use is a 7mm wetsuit. A lot of the people I dive with, usually the thickest they'll go, even in the winter, is a 5mm, just because it's more comfortable for uh, swimming around. And then the thinnest I'll put on is I have a 3-4, but a lot of other people will go down to like a 2-3. Interesting. Interesting. I do have, so when I was an undergrad at URI, I didn't know where my career was going to go. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did do a, um, a diving certification course through, through URI over the summer, um, managed to pass it, uh, and then promptly never went diving after that until like two years later when I'm in Bermuda with my friend and he's finishing his certification and I was allowed to go out with them. To while they were with the group that was finishing theirs. And that's that's it as far as my diving experience. Um, but it was really cool to be in that environment, to experience it and putting on all the gear, learning about it, it's very serious and it's it's requires such mental fortitude. Um, just being okay with one, being underwater completely, the sensation of the pressure of the water all around you. Um, it's definitely not for some people. Um, and I guess it's its just, I know a few friends who are just 100%, you know, try to dive as often as they can. They go everywhere to dive. Um, and I was just curious, you know, on on your path through where you are now is what prompted you to kind of take a, a diver's path? Um, was this something that you developed a passion for when you were younger, if you had an experience to, to dive when you were younger, or did it come on later in life and that just became your career? Yeah, that is a great question. So I've met some people in this field who have been diving their whole life, but that was not the case for me. Uh, I actually became really close with one of the grad students I met uh, through Stevens with John, uh, Matt Jansen. He's been featured on this podcast before, so just throw his name out there. Uh, and he introduced me to people in the world of waterfront in New York Harbor. So I did an internship with him at another company, not the one I'm currently at. And while I was there, they kind of put it in my head. They're like, you know, you have the right mindset for diving. Like we think you'd be a good fit for it. You should consider it. So while I was there, I got my scuba basic certification. And then uh, the company that I'm at now sent me to commercial dive school about two years ago now. It'll be two years in July. So I kind of fell into it. It wasn't it wasn't my plan. I didn't even know it was an option as, as a job. So I, I think I've, I think I've seen some of the pictures of, of, of you at dive school. And I, and I have to ask the question, uh, because it's it those, those pictures were quite uh, distinct in and of the fact that there were not very many other female divers there. So what is in, in your industry? Um, do you find that you're, you know, one of the only ones or are there more female divers than we would be led to believe? I'd say there's more female divers on the strictly commercial side of it. Uh, fewer on the engineer dive side of it. There's probably about as many as you'd think, but there's more. It's growing. It's growing, which is exciting to see. So there are at Marine Solutions where I am, there's two other women who are also engineers and also divers that I work with. That's actually really cool. So kudos for you for uh, jumping into that that profession um, and sort of leading the way. So uh, Chris, we heard that from Mariana that for her, the, the diving certification is probably one of the you know more important certifications. So um, I, I know you have a number of certifications as well. So Maybe can you talk a little bit about um, what, you know, your certifications mean to you, which ones are, are the most valuable? 
Sure. So I am a I am a professional engineer. So I think that is uh, a very valuable uh, certification for anybody that is in the engineering profession. And, and here at Taylor Engineering, you know, we have a program to you know kind of foster and encourage the staff to get their uh, PE license. So I think that would be, um, I guess I might say the the most important because it's so well known and, and covers you know kind of the 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 discipline of, of, of engineering. Um, however, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, through the ASCE, uh, a company, which is the Academy of Coastal Ocean Port and Navigation Engineers, I am certified as a diplomate in, in coastal engineering. And within a company, you could also get certified and in, in kind of get a certification for ocean, for port, or for navigation. And in fact, some professionals have more than one certification. I focused on getting the coastal certification because that is where I do the vast majority of, of my work. And the reason I chose to do it is I wanted to uh, kind of separate myself from, from the other practitioners, especially what we have, have found is in, in the coastal environment, there oftentimes can be other other, other firms or, or other engineers that might not have ever, you know, don't, don't have a degree specific to coastal engineering or haven't had the required courses to really understand wave mechanics or some other aspects that are critical to you know, kind of understanding the coastal environment and developing solutions. But, but they apply kind of a general civil degree and, and say that it's, you know, that they're a coastal engineer. So that's one of the background reasons for for why I chose to um, get the additional certification of being a diplomate. And uh, on accompany.org, there's uh, just a listing of the different requirements. And it, it did require me to have an oral exam that I had to prepare for. And then I think there were three uh, current members where we had about a two hour, you know, almost like an interview. It's called an oral exam, kind of an interview to go over um, kind of my experience and how I would handle certain situations. And I had to present a specific project I had worked on to explain kind of the ins and outs of the uh, engineering parts of it, as well as the project management and, uh, you know, kind of the full range of work that went into developing, developing that project. Now, that said, the having the, the certification is great. I, me and other diplomates, we're still trying to get the word out about it. And the, the goal would be to ultimately have the community at large understand what it would mean and, and why it's a benefit to have engineers with that specialty certification in order to, um, you know, put that into either the request for proposal or um, the other the other the other things that are going on. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in order to get that job, because right now there's, you know, no, if they, you know, ask for credentials, uh, there's not many that say we want a certified, you know, coastal engineering diplomate to, to work on this project or someone with that additional credentialing. So we're trying to get there. Um, I've, I'm aware of a few cases with that, but, but not many. So how many right now, would you say, uh, how many diplomates diplomates are there in coastal engineering? I did, I did my homework before I hopped on the podcast and I, I looked at the company website and it looks like there's around 120 worldwide right now that have the coastal uh, diplomate certification. And then within the whole coastal ocean port and navigation, there's around 230 uh, total. And once again, that's worldwide. That's not just the U.S. Yeah, so uh, just a handful, just a small sprinkling of you guys around the world, it seems. I could see why you guys want more of yourselves. Right, and it kind of gets to the idea of it really is a specialty um, kind of niche engineering. So it, 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 we, if there were 10,000 diplomates, then it would be hard to kind of uh, show that degree of specialization uh, that, that really goes into you know many of the practitioners that are that are really at the forefront of, of doing either coastal, ocean, uh, port, or navigation engineering. I have to say, I, I, I think that the uh, website is a great resource because 
the diplomat is one of the certifications that we certainly wanted to highlight on this episode. And having that listing um, made it very easy to track down uh, individuals that we might uh, bring on the show. So uh, it's kind of one of the, I guess, byproducts of it being such a, a specialized um, or limited number of diplomates. It was easy to, to, to find a, a podcast guest. I did want to follow up on one thing because you hit something um, that I think is really uh, relevant specifically to coastal engineers and specifically to the professional engineering license. Um, one of the things that I typically find is that an impediment or perhaps a disincentive for coastal engineers to pursue the PE is the fact that the PE generally is more, well, it's more general. It's typically a civil engineering certification for the most part. Um, and then it's doesn't have, doesn't necessarily imply, or there's not a specific, uh, exam for coastal engineers. And that makes it more, both more difficult to obtain, uh, but also potentially might make it seem less valuable. And obviously you believe it's valuable and Taylor believes it's valuable. And a lot of other coastal engineering firms believe it's valuable. So can you talk maybe a little bit more about kind of what that professional engineer certification allows you to do, even though it is not specific to coastal engineering? Yeah, that's a very good point. And, I, and you know, kind of an interesting backstory is when I, I spoke to some of my UF classmates when it was time to sit for the PE exam. And, and this was, you know, back in the uh, mid 2000s. And I know the PE exam has changed quite a bit since then. But some of my classmates had chose a, a transportation focus in the exam and others had chosen kind of the, the water resources focused um, uh, pathway, but everybody was trying to figure out, all right, I just learned all this, you know, specialized coastal engineering stuff. None of it's going to be on the exam. So kind of what's the, where, where's my strengths or what do I find most interesting to go and study for the next few months before I sit for the exam? Because you're right, a lot of the specialized graduate school work that we did was not covered on the exam. But but what was covered and what I think is important is the idea of, of problem solving and how to attack problems. So that's kind of universal, whether it's coastal focused or transportation focused or, or water resources, whatever it may be. But the idea of how to figure out, you know, kind of what information is there, what tools do you have at your disposal, and then how to develop the solution. And I think that's where, um, you know, the, the, the engineering method that you learn in school is, is really what is most useful when it comes to sitting for the PE exam, that, and just making sure you recognize that you do need to dedicate some time to preparing and understanding, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the content and the breadth of what's going to be on the exam. So you're, uh, you know, reasonably reasonably prepared. But when it comes to actually how I use it in my profession, so there's other engineers here at Taylor Engineering that do sign and seal um, many different types of coastal designs and, you know, coastal structures, other, other things like that. The way my career has gone is I've been focused more on some of the coastal modeling aspects related to storm surge and, and water levels. And, and those, many of those projects don't require a signing and sealing of the report at the end. And so I might not use my, my seal as much as some others here, but it does require me to um, meet the continuing education requirements. I'm registered in Florida and Mississippi. They have two different sets of rules for you know how many PDHs or professional development hours you need every year, every two years. So I, you have to keep up with that, including ethics, and you know laws and rules, and I think it's it's a way of making sure that uh, engineers are you know staying active within the you know kind of within the engineering profession and up to date on things like the the latest laws and rules as well as ethics and, and other you know aspects of whatever engineering that they're in. So it's kind of a a way to make sure you are staying current with things. Uh, so that's I mean that's how. I find it to be, you know, um, how it affects me and kind of the way I go about my everyday business. All right. So just to recap uh, for all of our listeners, right, and for me myself trying to make sure that I understand this correctly. Um, so <clears throat> in in the path of 
becoming a professional engineer, you take your fundamentals of engineering exam, you practice under a or with a professional engineer for a certain number of years. I don't know if they recently changed that number. Uh, That's something to check into. But overall, what your responsibilities are with that title is you are, you perform a study. Um, Is this, is this mostly beneficial for the consulting community versus um, other other industry or academic or uh, even government research related? Is this more beneficial for consulting? So what I find is that there are some in the you know academic community that do get their PE and there's, uh, but I think that's uh, maybe a, a minority of, of faculty members, but it also depends on the discipline of, of engineering. And maybe, maybe John can comment more on that of what he sees across kind of the academic community. Well, I would just say that I think it's extremely valuable in the even in the academic community because you're dealing with students all the time, um, and those students, you know, may or may not go into, in my case, coastal engineering, but certainly, um, you know, whatever branch of engineering they they often pursue that profes- professional engineer's license. So I, I think it's actually invaluable for programs to have professional engineers on staff. Not necessarily every professor that you might encounter. Um, but I, I certainly do think it's better. It's actually one of the things that my original career path, we talk about this all the time on the show, how you may start in one direction and end up somewhere completely different. Um, you know, my intent after graduate school was to come back to New Jersey and become a practicing engineer, get my PE, and then ultimately at some point end up in academia uh, teaching. And just, you know, I ended up short-circuiting the whole consulting PE path and just ended up eventually where I, where I wanted to be just sooner than I wanted to be there. So as a result of that, I don't have my PE license. And I think that's, you know, one of the regrets is that I, I don't have that certification. And for me, you know, the requirement of going back and doing uh, supervised work under a PE is really the main impediment that, that, that I have towards getting it. So I wouldn't rule it out for me in the future, but I think even as an academic, it's, it's beneficial to have that PE. And I've actually seen, you know, some, um, rumblings that, um, you know, the professional engineering community every now and again brings up the idea that in order to, you know, they want to see that certification in the instructors of the students, right? So it's not, it's not a requirement that professors have that PE, you have the, you know, the, 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 the department needs to be accredited or whatever, but they bring that up every now and again. And I don't think it's a bad thought necessarily that, you know, some portion or percentage, um, might, 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 ideally have a PE, but um, I think it's valuable in academia as well. So I did want to go and I did want to transition back to Mariana for a bit and say, first of all, are you inspired to get your PE now, Mariana? Uh, I actually have my EIT and I'm currently studying for my PE now. That's awesome. So that'll make you a member of an even more exclusive club, Female PE Diver. How many of those are there in the world? Is there Are there 180 of those uh, worldwide or, or, or something like that? I don't know. I currently know of like a handful. So Mariana, why don't, um, so the, I guess the, the, the diving certification, um, can you talk, talk a little bit more about kind of what that entails, what you had to go through to get that and kind of, you know, you know, how, how you use that in your everyday, uh, activities? Absolutely. So if anyone were to be interested in becoming a commercial diver, you need to go to commercial dive school. So a lot of times when people think of a diver, they think of a scuba diver. So the image that I like to put in people's head instead, if I'm talking to them, they don't have a video screen like we do now, is I say, don't think of a scuba diver, think underwater astronaut, just because that's more of a picture because I wear a big hard hat on my head. I wear the wetsuit. I have emergency air on my back, but my main air supply comes from an umbilical. So there's two, there's a couple different ways actually to go about getting that dive certification. So you don't need even a college degree to get that dive certification. You just need a high school diploma or a GED. And if you want to go directly to trade school, you can. Another way to go about doing it is the way that I did it. I went to engineering school first and graduated with my degree. And then from there, you can start working for a company that hires divers and they'll actually sponsor you to go to school. So a lot of companies handle that a lot of different ways. So I won't get into that piece of it, but 
once you're at dive school, there's also a couple of different programs that you can do that way and different schools offer different things. So the way most programs are is they're five or six months long and you're in the water or learning things about diving every single day uh, on the weekdays, kind of like normal school hours, like nine to four, nine to five. And you're learning about dive injuries, dive physics, dive math in the classroom. You're learning about different types of dive incidents. You're learning the ins and outs of all the equipment, everything you have to dress into. And then you're actually diving as well. So dive schools will have dive tanks that that you can dive in, that you practice in, um, you know, so you're not, you know, doing it live in a lake or river or anything like that. You're doing it in a controlled environment, usually under 15 feet, uh, just so you can kind of get used to that feeling of being underwater. Like Marissa said, it's a big mind shift. So that'll be your first thing that you do at school. And then the next thing is they'll usually put you in a lake or, you know, maybe like a really, really slow moving river or something that isn't going to be really, um, like really engaging, you know, just so you can focus on your equipment and what you're doing. Uh, because a lot of the dives that you'll do working, maybe you don't have visibility, maybe the current's going really fast. So you want to make sure that you're learning in a controlled environment like that. So that's the traditional school. The engineering school is similar, but what they do for the engineers is they'll send you ahead, uh, the program basically, and it will be a big binder that you go through and it walks through a lot of the different math that you'll do, a lot of the different dive physics, because they know if you have an engineering degree that they probably don't have to teach you PV equals NRT, right? Like they could just send that information to you and you could do it on your own ahead of time. And that counts towards uh, your classroom hours. And then when you get to school, instead of it being five or six months, instead it'll be a nine or 10 week intensive. So you'll be in class six hours a day or six days a week, 10 hours a day, and you're able to move through the program quicker so that you could get uh, back to the company that sponsored you and that they can get you out in the water. And the reason the programs are so different is because if you're going to commercial dive school right out of high school or you're going and you want to do strictly commercial diving, uh, you might be working for the union or something like that and doing more construction-based tasks. Whereas for engineers, we're typically not in the union. So we don't need to learn as many of those skills underwater as a union diver might need to know. So instead, they're just working on getting us used to being in the water and doing kind of basic tasks in the water. So when I'm in the water, what I'm doing is I'm usually taking measurements, I'm looking for things that are damaged, I'm describing things, and I'm swimming. Whereas somebody who's doing construction they're installing pile jackets or bulkheads or looking to do things like that, maybe demolition. So they need to be able to do different kinds of skills. Like they might learn rigging so that they could do salvage. Uh, so it all depends on the skill set that you want to learn and what side of the industry you're interested in going into. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to set you up, Marissa. And that's, I think you, you may know where I'm going here. Um, so you mentioned that you do a lot of diving in, in areas like the Hudson River, where the visibility is basically zero. So how do you know how far things are away from you when you're in the Hudson River or an environment? Oh, you quite simply do not know. <laughs> you just don't. Uh, I actually get lost a lot. They kind of tease me. That's okay, though. I've only been diving for two years, so that's bound to happen. But there's a couple of different tricks you can use to navigate. So... Um, like I said earlier, when I'm diving, I have my main air supply coming from an umbilical. So if you know the direction that you came from, you can pull on your umbilical and see, um, where it's going out to. And that'll give you an idea of where South is, for example. So that's one trick that I use when I'm underwater. If I'm going and I'm traveling underwater, looking at, uh, piles, for example, I'll know as I'm going inshore ground slopes up so I can follow the ground up to find the next pile. If I'm at the top of the pile and I'm navigating, something that I'll do is if I can't see anything, I can reach my hand up and I'll look for a pile cap and then I'm able to follow the pile cap to the next pile. So that can be handy. Luckily, most of the time, most of the dives, 
you can see just enough or you can kind of like pop your head up out of the water and just look where the next pile is. And then as long as you aim like a hand there and swim forward, you'll get there and you'll find it either with that hand or I run straight into it headfirst sometimes too. So That was going to be the next question. Have you ever run into anything headfirst? So good to know you have. Every single dive. <laughs> Every single dive. Promise you. Yeah. You have, um, you have visibility through your helmet, but the, you have like a visor through it. So you don't have peripheral vision at all. So I'll run into it. Usually not if I'm looking for piles, I'll usually end up knocking in stuff when I'm on my way back. Cause I'll just follow my rig back. I just climb it. So if it's up against the piles and I don't see them as I'm climbing, I'll knock into them that way usually. So how long are your typical uh, dive durations when you're out there doing something? I think my shortest dive, and this will depend on what we're inspecting, how deep it is, different factors like that. Um, if you get really tired because really strong current. Uh, my shortest dive that I did, I dove a freshwater tank. Uh, it was a ballast tank for a ferry barge. That dive was around maybe 10 minutes because the water was clear and the structure was in really good condition. So there wasn't a lot to report and it just wasn't that big. So that was my quickest dive. And then my longest dive I think is around five hours or five and a half hours. And that was a bigger structure that was in worse condition. And we got in really early in the day. And then there, we didn't have any limits as far as depth went. So we were within 20 feet where you have unlimited time. So it wasn't limited by, um, you know, like the deeper you go, the less time you have. So I was able to stay in because it was safe to do so. Sure. Wow. That's a long time. Get really uh, waterlogged after that. Absolutely. And really hungry. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Um, do you normally, do you do multiple dives in a day usually in a day to day or is it one dive per day? Uh, how many dives in a week would you do? Yeah, it varies a lot. So typically, if I'm diving, it'll just be one dive a day. It might be two if we're diving things that are far away from each other. So I'll dive one section on one part of the structure and then come out of the water, move the boat, and then hop back in. And with the surface interval time of 10 minutes, it counts as a repeat dive. So that's really the only time that I'll end up doing two dives typically uh, just one a day. As far as like how many times a week, again, it all depends. So I dive, but I am also an engineer. So we'll do a lot of reporting. We do a little bit of design. So we balance office and field work. So sometimes, you know, it's all mixed in. And some weeks I'm in the office and in the field, depending on the day. Other times out in the field for a month. And then other times, in the office for a month straight. So it'll mostly depend on what kind of work we have going on and who needs what, when, and when deadlines are. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Um, so with the PE that uh, Chris was mentioning for, in order to maintain your PE, you have to do a certain number of um, either uh, professional development hours or credits to some extent um, and you know, be up to date into the most ethics laws and everything. Um, what are there any um, courses you need to take in order to maintain your commercial diving certification? Like, how do you uh, keep it in the long run? So, to keep your commercial diving certification, there are actually other certifications that come with it. So, strictly for the diving one, you need to dive at least once a year, I think but you also need to keep up all of your other certs. So we have to do a fit to dive physical every single year to make sure that you're in good shape to dive and that nothing has changed over the last year that would you know, make you ineligible for diving. So that's the biggest one, the most important one. Um, you have to do an O2 safety course through uh, DAN, which is the organization that does safety with diving. So it's if somebody were to incur a dive injury, you know how to set up emergency oxygen to get to them uh, so that on their way to the hospital, you can already start treating them. We take first aid, secondary aid, and AED training. So just all that first responder stuff, because, you know, if something happens on the boat, it's not like an ambulance can necessarily 
get to the boat, right? So like we're our own first responders and then an ambulance will be able to get transport to the hospital once we're able to dock up somewhere that we can access an ambulance. It's another really important one. Uh, We do all sorts of other safety training, like bloodborne pathogens, safety on site, uh, ladders, um, OSHA, 10 hour or 30 hour, depending on if you're a supervisor or not. And then our company throws a lot of safety stuff our way, which is really great because we work in all different kinds of places. So even if we're being safe on site, if we're on, you know, you just never know what you might like come across just out in the world. So it's good to just have everybody keeping their eyes up all the time for anything. So we'll take safety courses on stuff that maybe we don't use every day, but we might encounter. So all those have to stay up to date as well. And then sometimes for specific clients, they'll have you do different background checks and things like that so that you can go on site. So those also have to be up to date. You know, Mariana, you're relatively new to the profession and obviously you've, you've, done a whole lot in terms of getting these certifications early on in your career. And, and Chris, you mentioned that you've, you've had your PE for quite some time and, and are fairly new, newer to the diplomate um, certification. So I guess, Chris, I'll start with you first. Um, in terms of you know advice about when to begin thinking about certifications, when to be thinking about applying for certifications, would you, uh, would you advise that, you know, new professionals begin to think about that immediately, begin to think about it while they're still in grad school or or in undergrad? Like, at what point do you think it's appropriate to begin uh, thinking about those certifications? So so I think it's important to, I guess, have a plan, right? So think about kind of how you envision your career going and having a plan in order to, you know, kind of what steps you're going to take along the way. Because I, in, 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 Finding someone who's gone through the process relatively recently, I think, is also important because I know there's been a whole bunch of changes since you know I took the PE exam, for example. So if you started a company and just start asking all the the old folks around about their experience, that's going to be a lot different than the experience uh, for the folks in the company that have most recently take you know taken the PE exam. Like I believe now, you don't have to. You can take the PE exam before you have the required years of experience working under, you know, a professional engineer. So what that allows you to do is to take the exam sooner when you have the the coursework and and some of this material that will be on the exam more fresh in your head. So instead of having to, uh, for for myself, I had to wait until I had the required experience met and then I could sit for the exam. I believe now you can sit for the exam before you have the experience. You still can't get your license if you pass until you until you have the experience, but at least you can kind of check that box. And that allow that also allows uh, you know uh, engineers to find a time when they are going to have the you know ability to to study for the exam, and maybe they can say, "All right, I want to take the exam," you know, in, in twelve months in the in the spring. Because I know in the winter, that's when I usually have less stuff going on and taking it, you know, at a different time of the year would be a lot harder because their life's busier at that point in time. So I think having, you know, kind of making sure you understand the all that goes into obtaining the, the licensure or the certification, whatever it might be, and then figuring out, you know, how you're going to how you're going to check those boxes and meet those requirements for that. For the diplomate, it's more of a 10 to 12 years of experience level and some of that depends on the degrees you have and things like that but it's it's a longer time frame and it's that's why it's designed to not be something you get like right out of school it's supposed to be something where you've demonstrated a, uh, a relatively large body of work and a um, have been in the profession seen seen quite a bit of different projects and and you know have have really um, you know have a, a good breadth of experience that you would be able to bring because that's important to uh, have, have seen lots of different situations and, and worked on many different projects in order to be considered an, an expert in the field. So different certifications will have different timeframes within your career, but, but understanding the requirements for each and then working out a plan on how you, you know, might be able to ob- obtain them, I think would be what I would suggest. 
So Mariana, I think you mentioned before that, you know, you first became interested in the diving pathway uh, through talking with one of your fellow uh, grad school colleagues. Did you, did you, did you have a plan like Chris uh, just mentioned, or did you sort of fall into some of the certifications that you have and the other ones, not just the diving certification, but some of the other ones as well? Yeah, it was definitely a mix of them. Some of them I had a plan for, some of them I fell into. So for the diving one, definitely just fell into it. And now that's the one that I use the most. So I knew I wanted to get it before I had graduated that I'd wanted to go to dive school. But, you know, like I said, when I started college, I didn't know that that was even an option as a career path. So I had to find that in order to know I wanted to do it. But the other two that I have, uh, Envision and Wedge, I planned out a little bit more. So I knew I was always interested in sustainability and building for the future and building in a way that we can keep doing it. So I actually got my Envision certification while I was still in school in my last year, and I've maintained it since. There's continuing education for Envision as well, but it has to be sustainability focused. So it can't just be necessarily something that's relevant to your field unless it it has to also be focused on sustainability for it to count as continuing education to envision. So that one I had planned out because it was something I was always interested in. And I do use that a lot. Um, I do anything in-house where we see sustainability coming through in contracts. Because uh, sometimes for certain government contracts, they'll want you to either use those guidance manuals or they'll specifically want to apply for an award. So I have all the background needed on that uh, to help guide our other engineers in-house. And then we're able to keep it in mind when we're just designing either way, when we're designing anyway, whether or not we're actually planning to apply for an award. And then Wedge, which is, uh, let me look up what the exact thing is. Wedge is Waterfront Edge Design Guidelines. That one is relatively new. There's actually not continuing education for that yet, but they're looking to develop it. So that one is actually started in New York City and based around New York City and is expanding and growing and changing. So that one is really similar to Envision, so it fit really well, but because it's also new, I couldn't have planned for it. The EIT I did plan for, and I'm planning for the PE now. So hopefully passing that test by the end of this year. Like Chris said, they did change the rules, at least in New Jersey where I am, so that now you can just sit for the test pretty much whenever. But then to apply for a license, um, you do need a certain amount of time. Um, I know you asked Chris uh, to give advice. So I know for anyone earlier on in their career, like I am, advice that I always heard was to take your EIT as soon as possible. If you can take it while you're in your senior year, even better. Uh, I think there's actually a statistic. One of my coworkers was telling me that six months after graduating, the pass rate for the FE exam steeply declines because you're just not using those things you learned in your freshman and sophomore year of college anymore. You know, like you've moved on to the stuff that's in your field that you're using every day. So maybe you're not doing chemistry and differential equations every day. It's okay, but for the FE, you need it. So if you can take that while still in school or as soon as you graduate, that really helps out a lot of people. So you're saying that five years after graduating grad school that I'm probably not likely going to pass the FE. <laughs> it has been on the back back burner um, since I graduated, and I definitely have just not made time for it. Well, that's okay. It just might be a little bit tougher because it's a broad test. Yeah, it just might be a little bit struggle. Especially for coastal engineers, right? Because there's nothing about actual coastal right on, on the FE or the PE. It's You'd have to just go back into hard civil, hard mechanical stuff and, and just go back to the basics and fundamentals that you I really have not used at all <laughs> since I graduated. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with Mariana's advice when it comes to that. I remember taking the EIT and it, I do, I guess, officially have my EIT. And I remember that being one of the most 
uh, miserable experiences of my life sitting for that test. And I, pat, I, I, you know, I have a PhD, but I, I think I barely passed the EIT just because, you know, I've been so focused on the coastal engineering stuff that trying to recall some of that early material from your early college days was just really, really tough. And I can only imagine a PE is, is just, is, is similar, uh, even though it is a little bit more focused. And, you know, I, I, you know, what Mariana said about, you know, sitting for the PE even now without having the experience, but when you're closer to your, uh, education, your undergrad education, I, I think that makes all the sense in the world. So I'm glad that the, the engineering boards have kind of gone that route because I think it does make it more accessible for, for people. So good job on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're also both computer-based now. So that's a big change. I think they rolled out the computer-based for the PE. This year is the first year they're doing it. But you you can sit for both tests in the same week if you really, really want to. I don't know why anybody would want to, but I've heard of people doing that and then they pass the PE because that's the stuff you use all the time that you're familiar with. But then they don't pass the FE and then you can't get your license because you need to pass that test. Um, how'd that happen? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I wanted to ask those questions, but I've heard of that happening to people. So like, even when you're far out from it, you do, it does come back, you know, like you do need to pass it. So. Wow. Chris, what was it like back in the day? All these new kids, now they're all on the computers all the time. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm not sure how it varies among state, but when I took it in Florida, it was, it was an open book exam. So you could bring in as much, there were people that had rolly suitcases or little kind of crates on little dollies that were bringing in all these, you know, reference materials, but you only have so much time. So the key was knowing you know, having taken the time to really study and know where the material was, was it, you know, within each book and how to use it and what was appropriate and what was not appropriate because you would see people or hear them, you know, frantically just trying to leaf through pages, not knowing where the information was or, you know, trying to find something that wasn't the right tool. So that was kind of one of the things I remember was feeling like I didn't bring in enough books compared to some other people, but but I passed. And when I took it, you didn't get a, you didn't get a score. So you didn't know whether you like really passed or just passed. It was just like you either passed or you didn't. So I passed, I was happy, um, you know, move along. So one thing that I, I you said, you're Chris, you're sort of, you're, you have your PE um, in both Florida and Mississippi. So in terms of reciprocity or what is the process like for getting your PE in multiple States? So that is a, there is a, there's, I don't know the acronym now, there is a clearinghouse that allows you to, that does facilitate, um, if you have your PE in one state, um, getting it in another state. That said, each state has its own unique rules for, you know, what it means to be a PE, how you become a PE, what the uh, renewal requirements are, what the continuing education requirements are. So from what I've gathered is there are some states that are easier to kind of get the reciprocal license in than others. And there's also some that are easier to maintain your license or maybe less effort is another way to put that in terms of the continuing education and such, because that does vary on a state level. You know, here at Taylor Engineering, we try to have our bases covered on having engineers, um, you know, licensed in the states where we do different projects. And I was going to be project manager on a, on a project in Mississippi, and we didn't have any, you know, current um, licensed staff there. So that's how I ended up on, you know, getting my Mississippi license. And now once I got it, now I just maintain it. There's no reason to let it lapse, but it is something that, um, you know, we, we have different staff members that are licensed in, in more than the states that they, that they live in. Mariana, is that true for the your certifications as well? Or are they state-based? No. So mine are not state-based. The ADCI one, which is for diving, is United States-based. So there are different diving certifications for if you want to dive for a company that's in Europe and a different one for Australia and Africa. 
So I know for Europe, their acronym is DCBC. It's really similar. There are just different requirements with what you'll do at school. And then the other uh, association that can certify you for commercial diving is IMCA, I-M-C-A. And these three different uh, licensing boards, they'll communicate with each other to make sure that things are kind of matching up or similar so that, you know, they're all taking the safest route possible for what they want to do. Cool. Cool. Um, so one of our last few questions, we do have some wrap up questions for you guys, but overall, I would love to know what does your certification or certifications, what do they mean to you and what have they allowed you to do in your career? For the diving one, it's allowed me to meet a lot of really interesting people that I would not have been able to meet otherwise. And I'm able to spend my entire day outside with cool people doing something that we all love. Um, So that's what that one has allowed me to do. Just really enjoyed who I've met through it. And then with the design ones, I don't do a ton of design yet. So we're gonna see where those take me. We're gonna find out. All right. for, for me, related to the PE, I'm, for, I guess for both of them, actually, it's it's the culmination of a lot of hard work and in, in training. And I think it is something that um, sets you apart from other, you know, individuals, whether they be engineers or not. But, you know, within the professional engineering, you know, community, there is a, a creed that goes along with that and ethical standards and um, ideas that, you know, kind of holding yourself and the profession to a very high standard, which I think is important. And for the uh, diplomate status, I think that um, is something that I wanted to do just to uh, set myself apart from, from others that either, you know, have a little bit of experience in coastal engineering or, you know, are more civil based, but then kind of dabble in coastal engineering. You know, I'm, I really enjoy coastal engineering and have kind of dedicated my professional life to to um, getting better at it and to, to being well-rounded in that, in that discipline. So I think it is something that documents that having gone through the process of receiving, you know, the, the certification. Very cool. I think, I think Marissa and I are in the same boat that we could sit here and like geek out about the certifications and the individual projects that you all have worked on. Both careers are, are, are fascinating to us as coastal engineers, but, um, you know, we do want to wrap up a little bit. And I think one of the questions that we tend to ask most of our guests is, since this is a podcast focused on students and new professionals, um, we typically ask sort of what advice would you give students and new professionals, people just starting out their career in coastal stuff, we'll say coastal engineering, coastal job, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, of course, we're talking about certifications today. So advice related to certifications, but I think even more broadly than that, what type of advice would you give people entering the coastal profession? And so I guess I'll start with you, Chris, and see, see what you have to say. All right. Uh, I guess my advice would just be to experience as much as you can, whether it be if you're you know, still in graduate school to just talk to different faculty members about what they're doing and maybe they're going out in the field or have a lab experiment where they need some additional people to help out and, you know, just, you know, take as many of those opportunities as you can find, because that will help you figure out, you know, A, what's going on in the field, but B, what you really like and what your passion is. Because if you find something that you're really passionate about, then when, you know, when you're, when you're working on it or learning new things, it's, it's not as much work as it might be if it's just something that you're only, you know, kind of interested in, or maybe not interested in at all. So just, use all the resources that you have to try and, you know, experience as much as you can. And that will help you figure out which direction you really want to go. And I think it's really cool that Mariana's found, found the diving part of it and kind of the route she got there is pretty, I think it's been interesting to hear that and, and, and learn about that. So Mariana, same question for you. What advice would you give students and new professionals? The advice I would give students and new professionals is to really get to know the people around you who you meet in this field, because it's not very big. So there's a chance that if you're in school, anybody who is studying 
coastal engineering, you're going to be working with them at some point. And, you know, you'll meet different people through the different jobs that you work and maybe you work with them at another company within the same field. So just really get to know them because you don't know where you are into them again, or if you're looking for a new job, they're looking for a new job, they're looking to go back to school, you're looking to go back to school. It's really important to maintain those connections and keep those relationships because it'll allow you to go the ways that you want to go and you'll be able to pull people in to work with you. Uh, it goes both ways and it's really valuable. Wow. I think that's, that's great advice, Marianne. And I, I, I don't think I can pass out the opportunity to segue as we begin to get into our uh, outro here. But uh, that, that advice about um, the relationships that you build is, is extremely important. And it's something that resonates across many of the podcasts that we've, uh, that we've, we've hosted, um, you know, whether it's the professional development podcast or even the, the undergraduate or graduate research experiences, coastal policy, et cetera. It is a very, relatively small field. As, as Chris said, there's 180 some odd diplomates of, uh, of coastal engineering. Um, and there, it is a relatively small profession. So it's important to maintain those con contacts. So I think as, as students and new professionals, um, that concept, as well as the idea of, of trying different things and taking advantage of opportunities. Again, that's certainly something that has resonated across many of our podcasts and the advice that our guests have. So I think with that, um, we would like to thank uh, our audience for joining us today and thank both of our guests, Chris and Mariana. You've been great. You know, have exposed us to a great amount of information about professional certifications, but, you know, I think also I can say, um, unique experiences within the field of coastal. Um, so I think that was another sort of added unexpected uh, aspect of this podcast. With that, uh, we do want to remind uh, some folks uh, about some deadlines coming up. The ASBPA uh, Best Restored Shores Award nominations are currently open, and these will be closing on July 1st. Related to the, related to the relationship part of things, um, the uh, abstract deadlines for posters for the National Coastal, the ASBPA's National Coastal Conference are currently open. Those will close on August 1st, as will the deadlines for submitting award nominations for ASBPA's various awards, which include the Morro P. O'Brien Award, the Robert Weigel Coastal Project Award, the Robert Dean Coastal Academic Award, the Gooderham Media Communications Award, and the ASBPA Member of the Year Award. So deadlines August 1st. Hope to see everybody at the National Coastal Conference uh, this year in Long Beach, California. I also want to take a moment to plug ASBPA's own certification program. As Chris mentioned, one of the problems related to some certifications is they don't necessarily illustrate an expertise in specific to coastal. So ASBPA a few years ago had started a uh, certification program called Certified Coastal Practitioner Program. Um, it's important and relevant to the conference in that two of the 10 modules required to become a certified coastal practitioner are being offered at the National Coastal Conference. So if you haven't uh, seen that yet or heard about that, I invite you to check it out. Information is available on the ASBPA website. Links to all of the above uh, certifications uh, as well as the ASBPA awards and information about the Coastal Conference will be in the episode description that accompanies this podcast. And the last thing that we want to mention is that this podcast, as well as all of the ASPN podcasts, are a labor of love. Uh, and we do it. Uh, we do it because we love what we talk about. Um, but uh, we, we are beginning a process of trying to identify support for some of our some of the great work that uh, ASPN and uh, our various podcast hosts are doing. So if you want to be seen and heard where it matters, uh, share your story in the top coastal and ocean podcast and on Coastal News Today. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, um, we're asking that you reach out to Tyler Buckingham, who's the producer of this podcast at Tyler at CoastalNewsToday.com or go to CoastalNewsToday.com slash advertising. And with that, I would like to thank our audience again for tuning in and thank our guests one last time. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed being here and I really enjoyed hearing about your experience too, Chris. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
Thank you both for being here.